Well, we've uh, made it to Second uh, Samuel as we continue to work through uh, the book of Samuel together. And so we'll be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 27, uh, all of it in its entirety. <clears throat> Again, 2 Samuel chapter 1, as we see a major transition in the uh, monarchy of Israel. Hear now God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. 
For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lays slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of God. <clears throat> Often, all throughout history, uh, and even obviously in scripture, the death of a major leader often has uh, an incredible impact on the world. You can think back through your life and uh, think through the many world leaders who have died. And it's not just local news, it's worldwide news. Everybody is aware of it. Everybody knows of it. Uh, and even in scripture, uh, the death of an important figure always transitions into a complete new area uh, of redemptive history. Uh, the death of Joseph, for example, was that major turning point in Israel's history that led them up into uh, uh, captivity into Egypt. Uh, the death of Moses led to the conquest of the land. Uh, the death of Joshua led to the wicked time of the evil uh, people in Israel in the time of the judges. Uh, and then finally, the death of Samuel really transitioned from the period of the judges up into the period of the kings. And now we have the death of Saul. Uh, and again, we're kind of left with this cliffhanger. Is David going to uh, take the throne? Is David going to be king over Israel? Is David going to be a wicked king like Saul? Um, Obviously, the Lord has anointed him, uh, but we're kind of in suspense as to what is the fate of Israel. They've suffered a major blow. Uh, they've lost their king. They, they've fled and are in shambles. <clears throat> and now we're left to what, what's next for them. And just to kind of recap uh, so far what has kind of led us up to this point in the death of Saul. Uh, if you remember 1 Samuel 26 through 27... Uh, we have David himself uh, having two opportunities to uh, take Saul's life, uh, but spare Saul. And he flees, instead of being with his people, he flees to go and live with the Philistines. And then in 1 Samuel 28, uh, we have that encounter with Saul and the medium, or the necromancer at Endor, and really his own hopes of searching a pagan to reverse the prophecy that the Lord had proclaimed over him. And then in 1 Samuel 29 and 30, the Philistines reject David. Uh, the leaders of the Philistines become kind of timid and afraid that this 
great war hero of Israel is among them. Uh, and if you remember as well, David had <clears throat> returned back to Ziklag, his hometown, his new hometown, his wives, and the wives of his men were captured, his town was burned, and so he goes and defeats the Amalekites. And then last week, 1 Samuel 31, we have the tragic death of Saul and of Jonathan. And we really highlighted uh, the, the impact of the death of Jonathan as one who both served his father until death and served his king until death as well. And we see that really come forth in David's lament towards the end of the chapter. And so really common in the Old Testament are these, these major sections. They either kind of begin or start with a genealogy of sorts. That's what starts a new major section of scripture, uh, such as these are the generations of so-and-so, or it's after the death of this person. Then you know there's this major transition point that the author of scripture is trying to uh, get through. Um, and so Samuel, when it was originally written, was a complete work, uh, but when they started to divide the books and chapters, we really see why they split uh, both of these to really emphasize the point that this is a major division in Samuel's, uh, in, in the narrative of uh, this book of the Bible. And so first we're going to look at uh, the death of Saul and the response of David. Again, just by way of reminder, so David is not in the picture while Saul is dead. He's out. He was already at war with the Amalekites. He had just defeated them. He had brought his people uh, back. He was returned to Ziklag, uh, where he had witnessed this destruction of his hometown. And so now he has this interesting encounter with this Amalekite. Now remember, he had just gone to destroy the Amalekites who had captured the wives of him uh, and his men. But now this Amalekite comes up to him and uh, tells him what had happened. <clears throat> and there's, there's kind of two options we can take uh, as to whether this Amalekite was taking the truth or where, whether he was lying. But the result is the same, uh, whichever route you want to take on whether he was being honest and he was actually there or if he was lying. And so the first option we'll kind of explore is whether or not this man is telling the truth. So uh, it appears by his general appearance and demeanor that he was certainly at uh, some sort of battle. His clothes were torn, indicating uh, that he had uh, been through uh, the rough and the thick of battle. Uh, he had dirt on his head. There's kind of that emphasis that he was somewhere else, uh, uh, not just at the comfort of his own home. Uh, and secondly, he also is able to recount uh, with accuracy, if we look at 1 Samuel 31, what had actually happened during the battle. Uh, Israel had fled. He was right in saying that. Um, obviously, uh, Saul and Jonathan are dead, and he recognizes that. Uh, he does mention chariots in the passage, which uh, wasn't in 1 Samuel 31, uh, but many believe that uh, when 1 Samuel 31.3 says that the battle pressed hard against Saul uh, and the archers found him, he was badly wounded, uh, that the idea of chariots and horsemen fits that pressing hard 
on the battle. Uh, during ancient warfare, uh, often the, the last kind of uh, effort that the enemy would put on the fleeing enemy is to discharge their horses and their chariots to kind of scoop them all up, uh, corral them into one herd, if you will, and then to finally execute and destroy them. So although there's no mention in the previous text that there's chariots, there's a good kind of implication that, yeah, he's probably still uh, telling the truth. And similarly, David himself wouldn't have known how Saul died. And so this man is presenting to him uh, some facts, at least in David's mind, as to what had actually happened. And uh, the Amalekite, even himself, brings the royal jewels of Saul to David. And it would be really rare for uh, someone who was not telling the truth and who wasn't there to have these in possession. And it's interesting that David twice has received the kingly uh, jewels uh, brought to him. Once was from Jonathan voluntarily. If you remember, Jonathan uh, surrendered his, the right to the throne, the right to the kingship, to David in presenting him the kingly regalia. And now this Amalekite, an enemy, also brings this to David as well. And so it seems, you know, at first glance, yeah, he's probably telling the truth. It seems like it's a legitimate thing. Uh, the second option, however, is that this man is lying, uh, that he's not telling the truth. Uh, his appearance still makes it seem like he was actually in battle. Uh, however, if you remember, David had gone to war uh, against the Amalekites, and the Philistines went separately to march off against Israel. Uh, and there's no indication that the Amalekites were with the Philistines during this battle. They were kind of separated, fighting on two different fronts. And again, <clears throat> we go back to the issue of the chariots. Yes, Saul was pressed hard, but again, there's no indication uh, from the original writer indicating that these were used in warfare. And it's the issue of whether or not Saul was actually still alive when this Amalekite had happened upon Saul. Now, obviously, it's a possibility that Saul had not completely died, but he was already pierced by many arrows. Uh, he fell on his own uh, sword. Uh, but the Amalekite uh, is kind of intending to bring about the fact that Saul had not actually perished from uh, these two seemingly mortal wounds and had not uh, taken his own life, but now this Amalekite comes to the scene and is able to uh, finish Saul off. Uh, potentially, he's telling David this as a sign of, hey, I'm uh, extending mercy to the king by uh, killing him and not allowing him to suffer. Or perhaps this Amalekite has in mind that, well, David is the rightful heir to the throne. If I kill the king, then I will receive some type of reward in response. Perhaps I'll get a political pardon uh, from David, or perhaps uh, I'll earn some favor with David and be spared as well. <clears throat> um, some good perspective on it is that if Amalekite, or if the Amalekite, uh, wanted a reward from David, he almost kind of had to fabricate this story 
in order to make it seem like he was the victor in this scenario. Uh, and one can kind of wonder how he came about earning these things uh, from Saul. Perhaps the uh, Philistines had already pressed their advance beyond, not recognizing that Saul had indeed fallen in battle. And this man, presumptively an Amalekite, kind of slithers his way through the ranks, happens upon Saul's body, takes the regalia from him, and then makes off for David in hopes of, again, receiving some type of pardon from him. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, he assumed that he could now be uh, incorporated as, uh, as a friend with David instead of a permanent foe with him. Uh, neither are clear, obviously, uh, I think we can lean more that the Amalekite was uh, lying in this uh, explicit example uh, because the result, although it's the same, it seems very uh, harsh, very uh, much David executing justice on behalf of God for this man uh, killing Saul, or at least presuming to uh, kill or finish off Saul. And sometimes I think we can, we can think that the things that we do uh, which are unseen, which are kind of hidden, uh, from man's eyes can earn us favor with man. But we remember that God sees all things, that God knows all things. We can never be so crafty uh, and so secretive when it comes to the things of God. I'm going to share with you uh, a story that uh, Dale Ralph Davis tells of this uh, passage. It's kind of anecdote um, from a Scottish minister and just by a, a little uh, detour, if, if you want any type of Old Testament study, uh, Dale Ralph Davis is your, is your go-to guy for anything in the Old Testament. Highly recommend him. He's really great at simplifying Old Testament theology and stories and making it very, very accessible. But I'm going to kind of read to you this encounter that he put in um, from a, a Scottish pastor, Dr. John Kennedy. When we think about the way in which we can kind of secretly go about things to deceive men, uh, but knowing that God sees all things. He says, <clears throat> there, once, uh, there was once a Scottish lad who thought this way. Uh, an unresolved misdemeanor had occurred in Dingwall. A boy had entered a garden and stripped the plum trees. Several months had gone by, yet the culprit was unknown. Then came a Sabbath when there was a children's service at the church. And the pastor, Dr. John Kennedy, was preaching. He spoke from Psalm 11:4 of the one whose eyes behold and eyelids try the children of men. Then he came to this dramatic conclusion. The boy with us this evening who stole the plums, I shall not look in the direction of his seat lest I betray him, but I know him. I saw him from my study window, saw the wall leaped, the pockets filled, the breathless race home. He thought no one saw, but I saw the whole, and God saw. How much more do we often think that we can go about life and, and secretly sin and secretly deceive others uh, when often people are caught in, in serious sin uh, by eyes that have been looking the whole time? But better yet... God sees all things. God knows all things. And whether or not this Amalekite was lying or telling the truth, God saw 
in his heart. And that's why I believe that he was truly lying here in this situation and David acting as the arbiter of God, as a king, executing justice demonstrates that, that things cannot go beyond God's sight no matter how hard we try. And so we'll look secondly at uh, the response of David and really the, the furthering of the assault on the Amalekites. David is not finished with what he started two chapters ago. <clears throat> and so the, the passage in verses 11 through 16, it starts with a very traditional uh, Israel lament. Uh, every time there's a lament, there's clothes torn, there's sackcloth and ashes. And, and I want you to just think for a minute, just, just think about the range of emotions that are going through David's head in this very moment. This humble shepherd boy uh, who was with Saul from the beginning. Uh, he played music to Saul. He comforted Saul. He won this great victory on behalf of Saul. Uh, Saul ended up hating him. He uh, befriended Jonathan. They became like brothers. Uh, Jonathan himself surrendered his kingship to David. Uh, he saved David's life uh, multiple times. And so David now is receiving this news, even though David is the right heir to the king, uh, the kingship. Uh, Saul, his king, his own king has died. And not only that, but his best friend, his brother, Jonathan, has died as well. We, we don't really grasp it too much except for uh, his lament, his song. But you can just imagine how distraught David is in this moment, but you can also see this, this glimmer of kingship in his heart as he executes justice against this Amalekite. Again, it seems like this man, this, this unnamed Amalekite, wanted some type of reward for pronouncing the death of the king, uh, whether he did it or whether he stole uh, the kingly garments. And it's kind of odd, this, this sinner, this pagan, this Amalekite, uh, acts a lot like a messenger of what he would consider the good news. Uh, he is the, the euangelion. He is pronouncing this good news to David, hoping that he will receive some favor and some blessings from David. But that which he uh, said was, in turn, detrimental to his faith or his fate by touching the Lord's anointed, touching the Lord's anointed by striking him, by killing him. Now, as a quick sidebar, um, this touching the Lord's anointed has been uh, very much abused in the church lately over the past uh, few decades, not here uh, in the church, not in uh, reform circles per se, uh, but many try to use this touch not God's anointed in terms of uh, never offering any type of criticism to uh, supposed pastors or those who stand in the pulpit on Sundays. Um, this specific reference to uh, touch not God's anointed, uh, touch is the same Hebrew word for to strike or to cause physical harm. It, it doesn't have a reference to speaking or saying something, but it's to induce physical harm upon the person. 
Uh, why does God say touch, or why does Scripture say touch not God's anointed? Because you should not strike the one whom God has set apart. You should not do what you feel uh, to cut him down or to kill him. This is exactly uh, what David encountered when having the opportunity uh, to kill Saul if he had, if, if he would have gone through with it. First Samuel 24, verse 6, uh, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, lowercase, referring to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then later in 1 Samuel 26, 9, he says to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The term itself refers to physical harm. It's not so much about saying something bad against the king. It's in reference to touching, to harming, to uh, physically doing something to the king. And so in a reference, in a sense, this Amalekite was kind of signing his own death warrant uh, by boasting about the fact that he had taken Saul's life. I have, I have killed him. I have destroyed him. Now I will receive the honor. Uh, but the blood, uh, the blood of Saul was not necessarily uh, on David's hand in signing, uh, excuse me, in executing uh, justice upon this Amalekite. Uh, and in another sense, too, we, we really see God's providence throughout uh, the kingship of David. Many times, David had the opportunity to take the kingship. It was rightfully his, yet he withheld his hand. He withheld doing what he thought was necessary. He didn't kill the king himself. And so David was, in a sense as well, providentially kept from earning the kingship for himself. God uh, promised that he would uh, eliminate Saul. And so God is the one who, through the Philistines, eliminates Saul and allows David to have the kingship as the Lord had promised. David didn't earn the kingship. David did not deserve the kingship. David did not obtain the kingship on his own. It was solely by God's grace. And it's a reminder to us, too, in very shadowy forms, just as we've been looking through Romans 9 over the uh, past month and a half now, uh, that God himself is the one who dictates who are saved, who are uh, among his elect. Just as God ensures David's kingship is not by David's own hand, so God also ensures that our salvation is not by our own hand, but is through God alone. And I think in this text as well, we really get hyped up at Saul being the bad guy. And Saul was, by many means, the, the, the enemy uh, throughout this story. But, but it really should elicit from us uh, a bit of grief and, and repentance, really, when God brings about judgment and justice against his enemies. Uh, God's judgment on Saul was just. And God said it would happen. Yet at the same time, it really should grieve us when we think about the nature of sin, that the wages of sin is death. Death is not a natural process. It wasn't intended by God. If Adam would have been fully obedient to God's command, 
he would have gained eternal life. Yet Adam sinned, and so death is, is not, it's not expected of us. We don't long for death. It's unnatural. It grieves us. And so it should grieve us as well when those who are without Christ die, when they die in their sins. We should never hold ourselves up to this high standard that we have earned this great privilege and this great life to be saved by Christ, and all those are meaningless and below us. In the same time, too, it should embolden us to proclaim the truth. Just as we read in Acts 4, there is no salvation in any name under heaven except through Jesus Christ. And so though, although God is just, we should never uh, take pride in the fact that uh, those who are without Christ are dying. It should grieve us. We should have lament over the lost and those who fall and die in their sins and trespasses. And David himself shows us uh, this godly understanding of judgment uh, as he executes justice upon this Amalekite. A Proverbs 17.5 says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And also Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David also shows us a godly grief of death, like we just talked about uh, a lesser man than David would have gloated and, and boasted over the death of Saul because Saul was his enemy a wicked enemy to David yet death wa or David wasn't pleased in the death of Saul as we will see in his lament he, he lifts up Saul he honors the life of Saul even though Saul was this wicked person and David also shows us spiritual principles in that divine judgment should never make us feel self-righteous. Divine judgment is just a taste of what we deserved if we were not in Christ. And so finally, we'll look at a lament for the mighty in verses 17 through 27. Often songs really do provide us a lot of comfort when we uh, reflect upon tragedy. <clears throat> uh, for those of you uh, who don't know, uh, the author of the hymn, It Is Well, was written by Horatio Spafford. Uh, he was married uh, to his wife, Anna. And many of you are familiar with this beautiful hymn, uh, but if you don't know the kind of story or the background behind it, it'll, it'll really give it more power uh, once you know it. So let me kind of bring that forward when we reflect upon how song comforts us in tragedy. So this hymn was written after several very tragic events in Horatio Spafford's life. Uh, so the first was the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. Uh, Spafford was a successful lawyer. He invested in a lot of property in Chicago. And when this fire happened, it burned down all of his property. So he was financially ruined uh, in 1871. And then in 1873, uh, the U.S. suffered a, a huge uh, economic downturn. And so he lost many of his investments as well. 
And so later, um, in 1873, he wanted to travel to England to help with the evangelistic efforts of D.L. Moody. Um, but this, this change of plans uh, happened uh, with Spafford, and so he sent his uh, four daughters ahead on a ship while he and his wife stayed back in the States. They would go on ahead and begin to uh, help with the evangelism in England. Uh, <clears throat> while Spafford was dealing with some of these business issues back in the States. Uh, well, while the ship was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, it collided with another ship. Um, all four of Spafford's daughters had died in the uh, shipwreck, and his daughter Anna survived and sent him a telegram uh, when she arrived back in England that she put saved alone. And so shortly afterwards, Spafford traveled back to meet his grieving wife in England, and he wrote the words to it is well while he passed over the exact spot where his four daughters had passed away in the shipwreck. And as they returned back to the U.S., he read this hymn uh, to his wife to comfort her uh, as a reminder that even though tragedy strikes us, it is still well with my soul. And so David here also pens this lament as a reminder that even though his beloved Jonathan, his brother in the faith, his brother in arms, even though his king Saul has died, uh, it is still well with his own soul. And so David laments uh, this great victory over Israel in hopes that it would not be proclaimed amidst the pagan nations. Uh, if you remember the, the song that was sung throughout the nation, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And now it's almost as if the Philistines now have their own song that they have struck down Israel's mighty king. So he is hoping that they will not do the same, that this renown of the Philistines, of this wicked nation, will not pierce through the surrounding nations. In verse 21, he mentions the unanointed shield. Uh, the word for shield in Hebrew has a meaning just beyond our own physical defense when we think of a shield. Uh, the Lord is obviously our shield. He is our protector. He takes blows on our behalf like a shield. But it's also a reference to sovereignty as well. And so it's as if David is saying that Saul's own sovereignty over his kingdom was defiled. It was no longer anointed. It was no longer set apart for holy use. But if you look at verse 22, look at the honor that David extends to Saul. Again, sometimes in life we focus too much on the negative and too much on the bad that people have done to us. But even though Saul was this enemy towards David, Saul, or excuse me, David still exalts Saul's military prowess and saying the Saul, the sword of Saul never returned empty. Saul was such a mighty warrior in battle. Jonathan was a mighty warrior in battle. In verse 23, uh, we think about how powerful uh, it is when we discussed last week this relationship that Saul and Jonathan had, that Jonathan still loved his father and his king, even though his father and his king 
were wicked men. Verse 24, we have the right mindset of us who should weep over the death of the ungodly. Again, we are not in the position to take pride over the death of the ungodly, but we weep and we mourn for that loss. And in verse 26, as many of you can kind of expect, this has been uh, utterly abused over uh, probably now over 100 years uh, as a uh, claim that there was some type of illicit relationship uh, between David and Jonathan. Obviously, nothing could be further from the truth. The point is that David himself uh, is extolling Jonathan's sacrificial love that he had for David. This was a, a brotherly love that Jonathan gave David his right to kingship. This right that, da- or that Jonathan had as the firstborn son of Saul willingly gave it over to his friend. Proverbs 17, 17 reminds us, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The the Bible itself demonstrates that there can be a genuine love that brothers have for one another. And many of you, I'm sure, have the same sentiment about your own friends that you share uh, brotherly love for, that you would uh, be willing to give your life for. Those those of you who serve in the military or have served in the military know what that willingness is like to lay your life down, to demonstrate a sacrificial love towards a brother. And then David again concludes with the same theme throughout how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. It's the one thing we need to ask ourselves when we look at this is, is how do we see Christ in this? And I think it's clear that Jesus himself even laments and weeps over the ungodly. In Luke 13, verses 35 through 30, or 34 through 35, He laments over his own city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And later in Luke 19, 41 through 44, Jesus himself drew near. He sees the city. He sees the very place that he's going to die and be crucified. And he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden before your eyes. Jesus shows us that it is appropriate to weep and to lament for those that are ungodly. But even more important, Jesus Christ shows us that he calls the ungodly to himself. Right? Jesus calls sinners. We want to think like we are David or like we are Jonathan in this passage, like we are pious, we are mighty, we are warriors. But really, at the end of the day, we're more like Saul. We seek after other worldly treasures. We seek 
after other loves rather than the Lord. Yet here's the thing, if you are in Christ, the, the temporal judgment that Saul received and the eternal judgment that we deserve, Jesus Christ paid for on our behalf. How much of that is such a wonderful truth. May it never be that we grow too mature, too theologically literate, too old in our jobs and our careers that we forget such a wonderful and simple truth all the days of our lives. And what will be incredible as we continue through 2 Samuel is we will see just how powerful Jesus' kingship is over all earthly kingships as we wait for his coming in anticipation. <clears throat> With that, let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, despite our shortcomings, despite our sins, despite our worldly endeavors to work our way up to you, Father of mercies, we are grateful for the grace that you have given to us, <clears throat> for the grace that is found in the work, the perfect work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. O Holy Spirit, that you would burn heaping coals upon our own heads as we uh, stray from your ways, as we stray from the truths of the gospel, as we look to temporal riches and goodness over the goodness that you, O Lord, have for us. Father, may us never grow weary, never grow old, never grow too mature for the gospel, for the good news that Jesus Christ died for me, the chief most of sinners. And this we pray in his mighty name. Amen.